Welcome to Cultivating Conservation, a podcast navigating new ideas of what conservation means and how we really can promote change. My name's Megan, and for the past 10 years I've been working as a filmmaker, telling stories about the natural world, in particular stories about whales. And I found on so many occasions whilst discussing different issues that all these incredible people around me doing exceptional things were not comfortable calling themselves conservationists. I'm here to call you all out and to instigate informal chats with individuals from all backgrounds about what the term really means to them. Delving into what shaped their thoughts and how each navigate the ideas of true conservation in what can sometimes feel like a constantly changing and hopeless future. My hope is to nourish and grow conscious conversations to ultimately help save the planet. Incremental change leading to monumental change. And if listening to this inspires just one person to get involved in something they really care about, then I'll be happy. So, what does conservation mean to you? In this episode, I'm chatting with dear friend and fellow camera person, Sam Rose Phillips. I first became aware of Sam's work back in 2016 when I saw her short film, The Singing Sea. We finally met in 2019 and since then have become great friends. A confident when it comes to discussing camera equipment, navigating freelance camera work, and most importantly, conservation. For the last few years, she has been developing a number of projects delving into the topic of ethics. The habituation of wildlife as a result of bad practices in filming, photographing, and the part that social media is playing in interactions with wildlife. She is the pillar of ethics when it comes to capturing the natural world. Her consciousness of impact on the environment around her is immeasurable, admirable, and infectious. I'm Sam Rose Phillips, and I we're right now recording this in my really sweet cabin. And I'm really happy to be sitting across from my friend that I haven't seen in six months. And we're in Yukulathot territory, uh, just outside of Yukulet. And yeah, I, I'm a documentary filmmaker. It's um, one of the things and ways that I share conservation stories with the world. I am also a writer and a photographer. But um, over the years have really... Uh, made a home for myself in the filmmaking world, making short films, and yeah. I well, I first became oh, I first how became, did I meet you? Yeah, I first became aware of your work when um, I think it was the year after I first came to Canada and spent the summer at uh, Whale Point on Gill Island and I think the summer after was when you went to Whale Point and and recorded The Singing Sea so I think through Janie and through Finn Island was where I kind of knew about about your work and then one of us slid into each other's DMs at some point (laughs) along the line. (laughs) I don't remember either I feel like we need to backtrack and look through some sort of social media I know it was definitely through Janie because Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember moving to the coast and I'm, I'm originally from out east and uh, I was, you know, my first few months on the coast was at this small research lab up in Gitgat territory and I didn't expect this small island to bring so many incredible and important people into my life. And even though you and I didn't, we've never been there at the same time. That would be amazing. We need to arrange that. 
like you came into my life from that. I'm sure Janie was like at one point and maybe multiple points. You need to meet Megan. It wasn't until it wasn't until two thousand at Orca Lab. Well, yeah, yeah it wouldn't yeah. have been until two thousand and nineteen. You got dropped off at CP. For yes. Day. Yeah. At Orca Lab. Yeah. My childhood self is very pleased with me because growing up, there's been a few species that have especially been really significant in my life. Um, one of which is whales, especially humpback whales. And so over the years with time with Janie up in Gigat territory at uh, what was then known as Cetacea Lab, was able to start um, this career uh, in documentary filmmaking and conservation storytelling with whales. And I feel like you really make a niche and a home in yourself with for yourself if you want to. <laughs> and so people started to, you know, after that, I think I also spent time um, uh, about half a year with Sea Shepherd. And so the combination of the whale background mixed in with my experience filming on boats got me to be well known for that. And so uh, we, yes, had, had been connected over the years and to discover that we were going to be in the same place at the same time. I remember reaching out being like, this is it. We're going to make it happen. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's been the one most wonderful thing ever. Since. If you think about cumulatively how much time we've actually spent together, it's probably like less than a week. Yeah. <laughs> like if you really think about it over the course of the last, well, you know, there were the plague years, so you had to take that <laughs> into consideration. But... Though you still visited me and then I think you, that was yeah, the trailer. Yeah, exactly. But, but uh, our, our 20 minute, uh, or 10 minute voice notes I feel have added up to Made significant up yeah. yeah of course what were your earliest memories and ideas of conservation that's a great question when I was younger I uh, grew up in the suburbs but I we had our family had a cottage on a really small lake in Ontario and this cottage provided a space for me where I could experience nature in like really beautiful and impactful ways. And so the, my earliest impression of what my relationship to wildlife looked like, I remember um, being somebody who sleeps in a lot as a kid. And at the cottage, I would wake up before everybody else because it was the summer and so the sun was up early. And I would sneak outside and watch the heron from across the water and the frogs. And uh, those early mornings were like some of my most cherished. I have a really big family. And so I found a lot of myself in those moments. I was like, oh, this is who I am, you know, away from people um, and connecting with nature. And then I would creep back inside, you know, it'd be like an hour and I'd creep back inside and I'd fall back asleep until, you know, mid-morning. And then my family would be like, oh, she's always sleeping in late. And like, I don't really think that they knew that I was doing this. Um, but it was my little time. And when I started to grow up a little bit more and was probably in my undergrad, I started to get into kayaking. And so my partner at the time and I would kayak and we would do a lot of trips um, around provinces. We went out to the East Coast um, and to the West Coast. Kayaked in all these places. And photography had always been a way that I expressed. Uh, and so having my love of photography my whole life 
brought into my kayaks with me uh, was really special combo and was I think in terms of the first truly like conservation questions of what does my presence here how can my presence in this place that's so beautiful that I am really enjoying experiencing how can that positively impact this place like you know in simplest terms even at that time like who can I share these photos with that can make a difference for these places it just expanded ever since then it was kind of like the toe in the door uh, that couldn't close ever again <laughs> oh that's one of my favorite questions it always every single person it brings out a really like visceral childhood memory that I can like close my eyes and just like imagine like a really young Sam or a really young Shari like mm. and what they were doing at that time so that's yeah it's always one of my favorite questions um mm. how did you see your journey sliding into the world of active conservation like what was that shift from spending time in that kayak and being like oh what can I do here into being like this is what I'm gonna do mm. So I, I, I grew up as an English major that was like creative writing, so I wanted to be a poet. Like I, when I, yeah, basically after my undergrad, I worked in advertising for a couple of years downtown Toronto and it was, uh, wow, what a shift. <laughs> I definitely didn't feel like, like I belonged there. Like I was really trying, you know, we were working with nonprofits still, um, but it was quite, uh, it's what I needed. I needed to really feel that unbelonging in order to look in other places for um, a sense of self. And so I had, you know, I was classically watching Planet Earth and Blue Planet growing up the whole time, watching those, feeling like, oh, I made a mistake. Like, I, I should have majored in marine biology. Should I go back to school? I had this belief that in order to contribute to conservation, I needed to have a degree that was directly related to me it. Me too. That's and what stopped me for so, you know, for many years before I finally was like, oh, there's another door here. There's so many doors. There's there every is. door. You can open any door and help this, right? Yeah, that's like one of my goals in conservation is whenever I'm talking to anybody, it's just, you don't have to start from ground zero, if you want to, you can, but for the most part, we each have a skill that can be contributed, right? Like well, that's why I wanted to make this podcast. Mm. Cause like everyone I spoke to was like, oh yeah, no, I'm not a conservationist. I just like, you know, do a bunch of graphic design for non-for-profits. It's changing, it's shifting, like everything's shifting. Conservation is not what it was 15 years ago. I just think everyone can be a conservationist. Like, yeah. And that's what you're just proving right now and what you're what you're currently doing. Yeah, I I think that I had this aha moment, like it really was for me an epiphany. I can't, I can't call it anything else. It was for whatever, maybe 24 years of my life at the time, maybe 23, but yeah, 24 years, I only, I, it was not an option for me. And one day it clicked and I was probably, you know, reading a National Geographic magazine or something like that and realizing that the tools that this storyteller used to have their this image of, you know, a wild animal shared were the same tools that I loved and used every day. Like, I always had my camera in my hand, so why why not use those skills in writing, too? And it, everything just felt like a possibility again. 
And that's when I found this program at the Royal Ontario Museum called Environmental Visual Communications. It was perfect because it was a six-month program. I didn't have to go back to school. And I was able to partner with Cetacea Lab. And so I, you know, reached out the year before knowing that I was going to be doing this program and was, again, there was a before. You didn't even know what kelp was. <laughs> I knew what kelp. I didn't know what a hold fast was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How does this stay here? Yeah, I didn't know what kelp tasted like. <laughs> but, you know, I had never been to the coast. But I can honestly say that growing up, my family was like, why do you keep saying that you're going to live in British Columbia? Like, it was just like, I knew that I was going to, like, I was just like, well, there's wolves and whales in the same place. I don't know where else I belong. <laughs> and, it, you know, that time. But was... what did you think back at, back that time when you were doing this visual communications project and, and you came out here and what did you think conservation was going to look like? What did you think you were going to be doing with your time? And what did what did you have in your head for your like five year goal at the time? What what did con what did your life in conservation look like to you? The second you started asking that, I was in my head prepared to say that I had no expectations because I think that part of that is true. But then I remember myself then and I was on a mission. And we all had expect we all had <sighs> expectations, right? And that's because we have dreams, and we had heroes, and we had mentors. Mm. You know, and from whether it was watching Planet Earth or reading a book, like we all had some kind of expectation of what we wanted our lives and con- conservation to be. Not necessarily on a selfish note, mm-hmm. but yeah, I definitely think that impact was like the word that I used non-stop when I started it was like how do I have the most impact it felt I often explain this urgency that we feel like this shift from urgency to uh reflection and like a slow wisdom and the ways that when you when you're first learning about anything you know whether it's um social issues or environmental issues like they're all connected of course and Anytime I learned about a new issue, there's this moment I can feel in my body of this like propelling forward, like almost this shame for not knowing something in time and wanting to make up for the 10 years that I, you know, didn't realize that this was an issue or that even my actions were impacting this. And so that urgency translated to like a, I don't know, just a fascination and a, um, always asking how could I have the most impact in the shortest amount of time? Yeah, I could see a smile on your well, face. I just think it's you just... know where this leads, right? It's yeah. burnout. It's, it's, uh... But it's not just that. We'll circle back around to it at some point, but I just think it's incredible that you went in saying, what is the biggest impact I can have? And now you're saying, what is the smallest impact I can have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, with, and yeah, totally. I think that's the thing. It's, you know, at first I'm asking myself a lot of like, how can my stories reach the most amount of people? Because I was touched by people's stories, right? My, my world shifted because people shared stories. So I, I felt that impact by others and I wanted to have that as well on the rest of the world. And then now to be questioning, not necessarily the positive impact side, but like, what what are the things that I do that I don't realize are impacting the world? Like it's 
I just I think it's important to reflect on our own the ways that we are relating with the world even even as conservationists right like it's like something that I think a lot of us are really proud to to be a part of the the conservation world and I think it's what's so important about continuing to keep each other in our lives not that this is the only reason we keep each other in in mm. each other's <laughs> lives but to constantly have someone to check in with because I think inherently there's something in when you're trying to do something good and you're trying to take part in something good and you're trying to do good, you can get blind to other things that are going on around you. Mm -hmm. And just because you're doing something inherently good doesn't mean that you're not having a negative impact somewhere and it's having that community of people around you to help assess Mm -hmm. all the time what you're doing and just having that exterior influence on anything to do with impact and ethics and how that fits into conservation. Well, you you asked how my expectations were at the beginning and I think, you know, on the one hand it was that I would have this huge impact. And on the other hand, in terms of my growth, it was that I would spend a lot of time with mentors and people who are doing this work and have been doing it for years. And, and learn from them. And learn from them. Mm. And I definitely put a lot of people on pedestals. Like, I like to see the best in people and and um, so much impact and positive storytelling have come out of a lot of people. And I, I feel like something that happened was the whether I worked with people or not, I just started to realize that nobody was perfect. So I was like, you know, the <laughs> just a healthy dose of reality that um, people aren't perfect. And there were maybe behaviors that people over the years had had shown me that didn't match up with my integrity. And you don't often know that until you see it in practice. Because if you're not put in those situations, it's sometimes you realize um, what your ethics are when the moment presents itself. And so I would either hear stories or read stories or experience things with different mentors. And they didn't match with how I was seeing. And I think that it was in reflecting on their actions that was really what shifted me towards those questions of like, because integrity is really important to me. It's um, it's the most important thing to me. And it's something, it's the reason why I love having friends that we can discuss and give feedback because I'm never, I'm never saying that. I'm perfect or that I have it figured out. I'm in a constant state of learning and I, and I thrive in that space of learning, um, even when it's uncomfortable. I'm really grateful to have experienced and seen things that didn't suit me very well because it helped me figure out what was important to me and what is important to me now and growing awareness. And it makes the right people shine out far brighter as well right yeah it's something I look for like when I'm Mm -hmm. it's not even a question of how I tell stories but even the types of stories I'm drawn to that I can I can feel that integrity from people it makes the story so much more rich and I seek those out like knowing when there's a storyteller that I trust their integrity and their like authenticity and how honest they're being about 
how stories were captured and why they're telling it and what the benefit is to uh, whether it's the people whose lands they're working on or the animals they're working with. When I have an understanding of that, I will follow that storyteller to the end, like, you, you know, it, w- it won't matter what kind of story they tell. And yeah, I guess that brings me on to the next question, which is probably the, the biggest word that springs to mind when I ever see your name or think of your name, and that is ethics. So let's talk about ethics. Mm. Mm-hmm. When did things, I feel like the last couple of years of your life have been like really, really rooted Mm. in sitting very uncomfortably with that word and when I did that program that environmental visual communications program back in 2015 uh, I remember there was a class uh, or like one of our subjects and the term was about ethics and somebody did a presentation and they were talking about how subjective ethics are I remember at the time, because I hadn't yet had a lot of opportunities to practice it, I didn't really understand. I kind of saw the storytelling, the way that I see that a lot of people um, that I talk to see it now, and it's expanded for me, but where at the time it was like, oh, these people are doing good work for good reasons and with good intentions. There's no question of ethics. Like, I just, in my head it seemed inseparable, like to be working as conservation storytellers, there's only one type of ethics and it's a constant examination of our impact on wildlife. And, you know, maybe at the top, you know, of the list that you hear about when you think of ethics, you think about baiting and you think about uh, staging and kind of the obvious ones that you're like, oh no, like, you know, most people are like, no, no, I don't, I don't do these things, right? Mm-hmm. And and then, okay, so we don't look at any other behaviors from people. And for me, it totally shifted. This is like, you know, if we have origin stories, this feels like a really big part of mine as well, is if you look at a lot of photographers, like even their how-to videos, or if they have books that, you know, teach photography, or mentors that I've had over the years, a lot of the time when you're asking how to have an impact or how do I tell impactful wildlife stories, it was I was always seeing, reading, and, exp- and hearing the words like earn the trust of these wild animals, like earn their trust, do these things to earn their trust. And so I was oriented into the start of my storytelling career, like, oh, it's our responsibility to have uh, animals like feel safe around us and that sounds really great like that sounds beautiful in fact and it's a world that I would love to live in where humans are these really safe places for all animals but that's really simplistic thinking and I I didn't understand that at the time and um, one of my friends here in town in Tofino her dad Bob Hansen is a human wildlife conflict expert so I met him I would go over for dinners at the start of my career and he'd ask me about my work and he would describe the same events that I was describing about earning trust and stuff with words like habituation and I slowly started to understand how with some species with many species the prolonged contact that animals can have with us in and you know it's different for every species but there is an impact there there is a slow learning that these wild animals are having when we are constantly 
spending time with them, you know, because you're not when you're when you're taking a photo or a video of an animal. We we've heard stories where you know people can spend weeks doing that with the same animals, and so that totally rocked my world. <laughs> At the time, I feel really grateful because I hadn't. You know, the a lot of my stories were focused on whales and uh, salmon, and so these were species where just by the nature of the organizations I worked with with whales, like they were all with research permits. The Be Whale Wise guidelines were always followed, and I was always working for people like Cetus who asked, their primarily their primary their primary objective is to stop that in its tracks, right? Keep distance, yeah, yeah like yeah. the distance between human and these animals. And so it was really interesting to me how it was very easy for me to see that with mm-hmm. whales and then to have that transferred to, oh, wait, now this is a question I'm bringing to all of my interactions with any animal, whether they're bird, amphibian, or mammal. Mm-hmm. That was a really powerful shift for me. And it almost stopped me in my tracks. And I have seen it stop friends in their tracks. It felt like there wasn't a way to tell stories in an ethical way. And so I was like, oh, well, if my presence is impacting this animal, then I'm just going to not tell their story because i rather them be safe from my presence there. And the thing about conservationists that I hear is like a lot of the times we're weighing our options and we're, we're, we're justifying our actions. We're, we're saying like, oh, but this is going to reach a million people. And so it's okay that I am habituating this one animal, uh, even though sometimes and often that can lead to the death of that animal. It's like a very, very thin line. And this is why that friend in that class said that ethics are subjective. It's It really is up to each individual. But I have come to this place where I'm like, oh, they're, they're still like, you know, not in a, an enforcement way, but like just even from our hearts as conservationists, like we're all getting into this work with the intention of helping. And so how can we continue to do actions when we learn that they're heart hurtful and harmful? It's just like my brain can't make sense of that. And it's so, uh, it's become this um, unfolding for me where I really want to understand and find ways to help our community of conservationists, but even like more specifically like storytellers, like ask themselves that question, like how can I tell this story in an ethical way that's not harming this animal? And getting creative, like, you know, we can get really creative as an industry. We have so many minds on the task and... uh, that's what I mean. Like, it's not as if we're a bunch of academics in a boardroom getting together, smashing our heads together. Like, it's a bunch of creative people. Like, we should have it in our toolkit yeah. to be able to figure these ideas out with being like, okay. Totally. People did it with books in the 1800s. People, you know. And if you think about, like... If you can do it with a pen and paper, then we're sure as hell going to be able to do it with, you know, after effects. And, exactly. You know, there's other ways around it. Totally. And and even just for me, it's like, I've done most of, most of my work have been really grassroots. Like, uh, all of my films have been with smaller organ- local organizations for the most part. And I feel like I have so many tools at my hands. But if you think about the types of stories, like the ones that have the biggest budgets, those are often the ones causing the most harm. And it's like, that money is so can so much be directed towards, you know, um, the most obvious alternative is, uh, and it's not an easy one, but it's one that's really readily available to a lot of people, 
and I get really excited by is our camera traps and remote camera setups. Those allow us access, like intimate access into animals' lives with much less harm than our presence there in those moments can do. And I'm not saying that remote cameras have no impact. Like there are definitely, again, these are, these are questions that we have to ask ourselves on a case by case basis. Like, where are you putting that trap? Like, why there? And can it be in a place that is less impact? You know, like just trying to find the, the, the least impact possible for the story. But again, we just, the money is even out there in a lot of these stories to do better. And I just would like to see more put towards places and considerations around ethics. And that, you know, that's treating all of our subjects, no matter wild animal or human. It's For someone that's done a big old deep dive into this, like you have over the last couple of years, it must be tough for you to interact with platforms like Instagram and Facebook on a daily basis. Mm. How do you feel the role of role of social of social mm. media has played in the ethics of um, humans' interaction with wildlife, whether it be for conservation purposes or whether it be for the like? Mm. Yeah, it's funny that you started with the like. How do you feel about that? Nobody's asked me that before, but I instantly was like, "Wow, yeah, it's been a." You can see the tears rolling down your eyes as you're <laughs> scrolling at night, like it. What? I've seen a shift in it in the last year. I've become sort of increasingly more and more. I think uncomfort is prob uncomfortable is probably the best mm. word to describe it. Well, you kind of develop a, a like a literacy around it, right? So. Yeah. Again, I when I started this, I didn't have a sense of like what ethical filmmaking looked like, and um, like without being at the set and just watching something. And so now, when I see these photos, these photos that used to bring a lot of joy to me because it's like these really cute close-ups of animals, um, questions come to mind. Um, how long was the lens? How much time did they spend with this animal? Like. You know, it it continues, but I find that the, you know, it's even kind of ruined a lot of documentaries for me. Like, mm -hmm. I, where I can't shut that literacy off. And so when I watch something, I'm like, oh, okay, like, based off of that last scene, I can see where they put this camera. And I can see that even just the bot, like, I've learned a lot more over the years about uh, different species body language. And so to see shots being included in these big documentaries where like an animal is very clearly um, either like, yeah, just reacting negatively to the presence of this camera or this um, filmmaker. And so, yeah, I find that the impact that that has on me is, um, it's not something that I, yeah, it's just, it's, it's been an interesting change in my experience just as an audience member in terms of social media, this is kind of the the crux that I, I have conversations with mentors or or people over the years is like, I think for a long time, conservationists have been able to get away with some of the behaviors and choices to get the shot because it was kind of just them for 20 years kind of thing. Like there weren't, it, it was a smaller group of people out doing this work. 
And a lot of the times these people now have millions of followers on social media that are receiving their content, that are not having context to how the photo was taken. And if they do, it's usually them being really close to the animal. And then, you know, people who like, and I, and I use the word amateur in a sense of like beginners, beginners get into the field and they're instantly seeking out these same experiences without um, that awareness either. And so now there's, you know, like 20% of their followers going out and trying to do the same thing. And, and that has just massively increased the amount of people outside. Like I live in an area, you know, New Channel territory and like specifically Tofino, especially in, in Yupula, you know, would get like up, I think almost a million visitors every year or like 800,000. Wow. And so many people that I meet, uh, just like tourists on the street, like will ask like, what is the best place to take a picture of this animal? Like they're coming here to experience and have a memory of and bring that memory home of Mm -hmm. of a wild animal. And that's what I see when I see social media. It's like this place where this, uh, this love of animals is also coming and meeting up with this uh, lack of awareness or understanding of how to respect them. Absolutely. I had my friend, I was watching a nature documentary with him the other day and he was like, oh, just, it was a local nature documentary, local to this area that we're, we're living in. He said, oh, I'm just you know, I'm really bummed that they didn't put any of the locations in that they filmed this. And I was like, well, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm. Please don't put the locations of where you're filming this because there's, like you said, there's already however many millions of people coming to this area to seek those interactions. And it's all about cumulative impact for me is one of the scariest notions that I think about at 1am in the morning when I can't sleep and I look through Instagram and I'm constantly presented with people swimming with killer whales and all matter of, you know, anything from something as large impact as that to pictures of, you know, dormice holding up daisies and sniffing them. It's like someone's put that, like, that's totally staged. And you think impact from the bottom right to the top and it just, um, yeah, pretty scary. (laughs) Mm. Tell me about the hope, though. What hope... What hope do you have? What hope do you see? And what are you working on right now? The hope that I see is I am not the only person growing in awareness around this. And I think I have a sense that people are... It it comes to kind of like a lack of education thing. And so the more that people are being educated that this is a way to, you know, experience and see the content that we're taking in I feel like the ways that people are doing that can allow for it just seems more celebrated or requested or I'm just hearing people looking for um hmm, I can think of a better way to the hope the hope question always stumps me because <laughs> it's it's not obvious like I guess I can say that that the hope is something that when I, the more I talk about it with people, the more of an appetite I see other people have for it too. So it's there. I think that's where I see hope. It's not that like, oh, everybody's changing and yay, we're, it's all, it's all for the better. 
It's just the fact that when it is spoken about, people are really interested to hear more. And that means that it's something that is, it makes sense to people. And they want to understand, like, they almost are like, wait, well, why isn't it done that way? Like, if, if you're a conservationist, shouldn't it just always everything be good for the animals that you work for? And so, yeah, and that's where I get it. What do you, do you see hope somewhere else? You might have like a... Oh, I, this partly with the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, like this is where I see the hope. I see hope in you. I see oh. hope in Gloria. I see hope in all of these amazing people that I'm interested in talking to oh I see hope in all of these people around me and that's why I'm continue to try and keep all of these people in my lives and explore this as much as possible and like you said impact that's what I was sitting down and thinking about like all these amazing conversations that I have with all of you every time I see you what if everyone else could listen to those conversations and I know that's the whole premise of a podcast and of course I spent two years thinking that no one would listen to the podcast and then I realised, you know, thinking that the market's oversaturated and all of that and understandably like it is, but that shouldn't be a reason to say no. I then just made the decision that no one's going to listen to it if I don't actually record it. Mm. So I might as well give it a go. And that's the whole point. And coming on to my sort of like last and final question, the whole point of this podcast is if it can, if it can inspire one person to listen to what you've just said here and go out and get involved in something that they care about, whether it's ants or dormice or, you know, peat moss, lichen, <laughs> whatever, you know, the small to the large, whatever it is that, that you love. Everyone loves something. And if I've learned anything from spending time around kids is that kids just love it. Mm. They just love nature. Mm -hmm. And I think we did as well, right? Every single origin story that people have talked about, like you just said about being at Cabin, Everyone comes from this. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard stories of my friend Mark Worthing. His grandmother used to paint nature on plates. That's what she did. Oh. And that's where it came from, from him. And that's why it's one of my favourite questions. But oh. for you, what advice do you have to aspiring people out there with a similar skill, skill set to ours and the similar tools that we have in terms of mm. storytelling and image making... Um, what advice do you have for them in navigating what you're going through right now? I feel like the most important ingredients in this work in general and especially around ethics is a really healthy dose of humility <laughs> uh, and like a willingness to learn. I think that's something that as a documentary filmmaker is really special because we are able to, it's our job to be the question asker. You know, I envy you right now in this conversation because you're getting to ask all the questions and it's like you get to be in this state of learning where you don't have to have any of the answers. You just have to have some really good questions. And I feel like not like containing that within your interviews or your like work moments, but to have that willingness throughout your entire life and day and all of your actions feels really important. And uh, again, like that humility and integrity as a way of not letting others who have been here before us dictate like what our integrity is. 
that we get to decide and claim that for ourselves and and that it's it's okay it's it's all right to hold the rest of the industry or our community to higher standards uh i think that that's never going to lead to a bad time right no but i but i don't think i think you know it's kind of funny like growing up i think i've always had this um this pull towards ethics but maybe it came across as uncool or like you know it's like oh come on like and I so I feel like I maybe kept that from the world for a long time and it feels really good in these past couple of years to be claiming that for myself as like that's a that's a part of me that's like a way that I see and experience the world and so I I just hope that people know that that's that's acceptable and in fact it's beautiful and it's something that will lift all of us up if we pay attention to how we are impacting each other and the world around us and yeah and just reach out too. like advice is like like let's all talk about it together (laughs) but like you know but like I feel like it's something that we think we have to do you know in our in our heads and and it's just I'm shocked at how little we talk about the specifics around ethics in this community and so I would just like I would love to hear from people too to to know what we all think about it because I am learning and I'm sure you are as well so 100% more conversations like this oh thank you Sam for everything that you do you're amazing a lot of this these thoughts and the questions I have around ethics have led to me finally feeling ready to tell stories again about animals that would be habituated by human presence because I'm coming back to it with that awareness and like a real trust in myself that I will make decisions that are in the highest for like anybody involved in this story and so yeah I can't share full details yet but I'm really excited to be working on uh, my first directing my first feature length documentary with my friends right now um, on a story really close to home with people who I love a lot with an animal who means the most to me. And so I just can't wait to share that. And I, and I hope that it will be a tool and a, a way to show our community, hey, like this can be done in a, in a way that doesn't negatively impact this animal. And I'm excited for the learning that's already happened and that's to come for the project and I cannot wait to share it. I cannot wait to see it. (laughs) I cannot wait to share it either. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much for doing this, Sam. That was... (laughs) Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode got some thoughts and feelings let's keep this conversation going please do get in touch rate subscribe and comment to help other people find this podcast and let's keep cultivating conservation